It's not about can we do it. It was more about how we do it. I always expected people to say no. And then when someone said yes, I was like, what? <laughs> Actually, you want to do this? <laughs> I just had to keep putting one foot in front of the other. The whole world is like, what exactly have you smoked again? This is The Raise, where we take you behind the scenes into the capital raising journeys of startup founders. Some you may have heard of, others you need to hear about, and all of whom have been through it to close a raise. On the show, you'll learn how founders make the difficult decisions. Whether you're a founder yourself or you're simply interested in the fast-moving, innovative world of startups, this show is for you. I'm your host, Mylin Dang. I'm Managing Director of capital raising law firm Metis Law. For over a decade, I've worked with founders to raise capital so they can build businesses that make a lasting impact. Hello, founders and friends. Today on The Raise, it's the second instalment in our Capital Raising Masterclass with Josh Rogers, founder and CEO of the DeFi startup, Mintrust. The first instalment was a remarkable account of how, after a personal legal dispute, he had to start again from scratch building out Mintrust, an extraordinary decentralized finance lending protocol. In this second installment, Josh shares his fascinating and insightful views on getting the right investors and having them powerfully support his startup. How understanding the Network FX playbook is critical for any startup to be successful, plus some heartfelt insight into what it personally takes to be a successful founder of a startup. Let's dive in. So you mentioned that you're very picky about who your investors were going to be. What sort of due diligence did you conduct on the investors? We were actually interested in reaching out to teams who they had invested in. We actually had like a due diligence checking process that we actually went through to ensure that what we were hearing is what was going to actually happen. We didn't do that for every investor because some of them we already knew. We were definitely looking for some sort of third-party validation. And this is very much so in traditional startups, is that investors will tell you whatever they feel like. Not not every investor, but you know, some investors, in order to win your heart and soul. And then once you've given the allocation, they'll do whatever it suits themselves. I've seen that repeatedly. I've seen it over and over and over again. It's massively disappointing. It's actually heartbreaking sometimes. But also, it's just a huge drain potential from the business when you actually have investors who do walk their talk. And the value that investors bring and great investors bring is extraordinary. And I'm really aware of that. So it's a huge opportunity and it's also a threat. If you get your investor fundraising right, it provides an extraordinary opportunity and it really does take the business to the next level. And if you get it wrong, it can be a real drain. One of the problems in the traditional startups is that what you're doing is your investors are taking equity. And very often they want to get involved in business I would caution against that. Anyone who wants a board seat, you want to ask the reasons why. One of the reasons why is because investors have different agendas and those agendas don't necessarily suit the business. So this is the case with traditional VCs as well. VCs have their own agendas, but there's nothing wrong with their agendas, but they don't necessarily suit the needs of the business. And I've seen over and over and over again situations where startups have died because the actual type of investor that's been brought in has killed it. No investor consciously tries to do that. They don't intend to. But the point is the mindset of an individual 
is something we're, you know, we're each individually blind to our own mindset. And yet that mindset of a significant investor that is caught up in a value chain, traditional type business thinking and not one of a digital platform is potentially very dangerous. One of the things I tell people is that the most dangerous people in the business are in the board. The members of the board, the board of directors, they're the most dangerous people in the business. And one of the reasons why is that they think they're not. They're very often the last people to consider that they're the problem. But if you get that right, it's really powerful. You get that wrong, it's devastating. Josh, you say that your investors are consistently accountable. How do you make that happen? There's a whole range of ways. There's constant communication between us. And we have set up a permission between ourselves and our investors that we are going to be relentless in our requests for support. Now, along the way, you have to prove yourself as well. So it's not just a one-way street. We can't just constantly ask something of our investors and not deliver. But if our investors can see that we are delivering and fulfilling on our commitments to them, then what we have found is a real willingness for them to be there for us. I see that as a true partnership. We're going to ask you for this. In order for us to be able to do that, we have to ongoingly be able to hit markers that show you that we're worthy of the thought and effort in the first place. And I think that that's a fair enough deal. But we really set that up as part of our relationship right on the, on day dot. We hold ourselves to our own accountability as well. And part of that's also got to do with the way that we communicate. In interest, I record a video every month that does a full update. We send that out to everybody. I personally answer we run private channels with every single one of our investors. And where it's to do with questions regarding the business, I personally answer all of those. So I'm in constant communication with our investors. Telegram is such an elegant way to do that. I don't find it burdensome at all. But we really do put a lot of time and effort into making sure that we keep people appraised of the business in a way that's proactive. We want them to have the experience that we really do have their interests in mind. And part of that as well is that we put our attention on our communication being responsible. So businesses, the idea that every announcement's a great announcement is just not realistic because we all have challenges and we want to actually share those challenges. We want to be responsible for sharing them because we want our investors to help us solve them. So that's the other thing is that you see a lot of, especially early stage startups, where they think they have to tell everyone good news all the time. And that's just not the nature of how startups go. I think our investors really appreciate the degree to which we take accountability for where the business is at. You had a great strategy, you had a great team. You're really in a quite a unique situation that you could pick and choose your investors. What was it about Mintrust, do you think, that was so attractive and that put you in that position? The answer, I suppose, circles back to my comments earlier, really around the whole digital platform architecture. I've been obsessed about digital platform architecture for about 15 years. It really came to my attention when a previous colleague of mine put what was an academic white paper from Harvard, two of them, on my desk that talked about this thing called network effects, which I'd never heard of. And when I first read it, I thought, oh, wow, this is like network marketing on the internet. And because you know, <laughs> what it said is every new person that comes in basically improves the system for everybody else. And so that makes it more attractive for potential new users as well, right? And I was like, but the penny started to drop. And that's when, you know, I really became a student of network effects and the whole digital platform architecture. And that was probably around 2005, 2006, something like that. And the point is, is that architecture is not as simple as 
the 101, hey, digital platforms are about user-generated value or user-created value, which is what they are. They're a demand-side model rather than a supply-side model, which is what the traditional businesses are. There's a lot more to it. And the detail in it when you actually start to run down that rabbit hole is quite extensive. And understanding that and then applying and being able to apply that into a new model is, in my view, absolutely inherent. The idea that you're a startup founder of any startup today and you are not obsessed by this is, in my view, a failing. And the more I got into it, what more it shocked me in the sense of that not only did this stuff inherently matter to whether or not you were going to be successful or not, but the detail of it was far more than what anyone was looking at on Medium. But the interesting thing to start to do is to start to think about how this then applies to your model. But solving that puzzle is, in my view, incredibly important. If you don't understand these fundamentals, your chances of success are low. You're relying on luck. If you do, there's no guarantee of success, but you now have a shot. Because if you play by the playbook, you have a shot. If you don't play by the playbook, you're guaranteed a failure. Now, if you don't know the playbook, then what you're doing is relying on luck that what you're doing goes by the playbook. And that's a pretty kind of wild shot. And so when you bring that to Mintrist, Mintrist introduces two network effects that don't exist in its peers. In technology startups, the only thing that you care about is network effects. You've got to figure out how to solve your chicken and egg problem, or how do you liquidity hack your initial users. But once you've done that, all you care about is network effects. And your entire business is about how do you generate and maximize network effects within your user ecosystem. And every single feature that you build must be contributing to network effects. And if it doesn't, don't build it because it's a waste of time. When you apply that thing to Mintrist, it comes up with a fairly unique model. And it's a model that doesn't really have much fat on the table in terms of enabling competitors to improve upon it. In fact, I would argue there's none. And that's quite deliberate. So the model was unique. The way that Mintrist captures value and distributes it to its user participants is unique in crypto. And in doing so, what it does is it brings a whole new scale or a whole new methodology to what's called liquidity mining, which is where DeFi protocols issue tokens to borrowers and lenders to incentivize their use. And it brings a whole new element to that that outcompetes its existing sector peers. There's a whole range of architectural thinking around that. And then as part of that value capture mechanism, we did something at a technological level that hasn't been done before. And that is we built on-chain liquidation processes inside the protocol rather than using external third parties to do that. We actually were able to then capture that fee income that those external third parties normally take. And we were able to capture that. So that means that it's a protocol, it's much more profitable than any other protocol around because of that. And we distribute that captured value back to the user's participants in its entirety. That was a relatively new model. But where that understanding came from was because of the work that I have done definitely for more than a decade on digital platforms. And if there's one thing I could ever encourage anyone to do, if there's like one thing, it's to go and get your head around that playbook and get obsessed pretty fast. Because the funny thing, Marlene, is that most people don't even know the playbook exists, let alone inherently understand it and are semi-obsessed by it. And I just see that absolutely fundamental to the business because it's actually how the business works. 
So Josh, during the cap raising process, you had a great team around you. What was the most difficult question that investors asked you? I'm not sure we had one. <laughs> <laughs> well, really, it's probably around go-to-market. You know, we hadn't actually fully formed our go-to-market strategy. Funnily enough, mm-hmm. our go-to-market strategy, I'm actually sharing with our investors this week for the very first time, like in full detail. And the reason why is that it's been a process of evolution too. Go-to-market strategy is something that you really fine-tune as you get closer. What we've done is that, in my view, our go-to-market strategy has gone through a complete breakthrough. It's something unique, it's new, that hasn't been done in crypto before. We're very excited about it and we're looking to announce that in the next two weeks. But during the fundraising, that hadn't been fully formed. It was relatively high level. And what we were relying upon was that the calibre of the team said to investors that we will figure this one out. Just simply where we were in the cycle, we had kind of a what I would regard as a fairly vanilla go-to-market that did sound pretty much like a lot of what other people were saying. We weren't able to necessarily distinguish ourselves in that way, but I do feel that we've done that now. On your team, the team that you put together, what criteria did you use to choose your senior leadership team, aside from skill set and experience? The answer is there's a lot that goes into the mindset Culture is not something in Minterest that just happens by chance. Our culture is fully designed and it's designed by me because that's my job as CEO. There's an entire deck on this that runs into 160 pages I can share. I will be sharing one day. That deck is formative in how we design our culture within our team. And the key thing that happens as part of that is firstly, the culture is designed. But secondly, what matters to me is values and principles. So what that means is I'm looking for people that care about values and principles and whose values and principles align with those of the business. So the idea that they're the same is not so. That's just not what happens. But I value people who value values. I'm just not interested in people who are seeking to participate because they're very good at what they do and are essentially opportunists. Funnily enough, as an Australian, and I don't necessarily like admitting this to my Australian (laughs) compatriots, but one of my great sources of inspiration around this is the All Blacks. I agree with you, absolutely. Several years ago, I did a very big deep dive on All Black culture. And then the third thing that really matters, and, and these are all key biological drivers for human beings anyway, the third thing is purpose. I'm interested in people whose values and principles align with Mintra's purpose and who lead purposeful lives. The reason that purpose matters, and people don't seem to see this, the huge benefit for developing a business with an inspiring purpose for its participants, for its staff, is because it does something quite remarkable. It makes people smarter for longer. When people are inspired by what they do, their cognitive capacity goes to another level. The anecdotal way to think about this is that when you are uninspired by something, you kind of turn the lights off. You're just not interested. But when a business that you're involved in is aligned with your own value set and it inspires and draws you forth, you're highly motivated. Now, that motivation actually has a cognitive huge payoff. And that cognitive payoff is that you maintain your ability to think creatively for longer periods of time. And that is a massive, massive payoff. I'm chasing this creative premium of the very best. And how do we create a culture that supports that? So when I'm hiring anybody, I'm involved in the hiring process, literally everybody on the team. But when I'm hiring anybody, that's important. I'm looking for the values of that individual. 
how do you work out during an interviewing process what someone's values and principles are and whether they're being authentic? The easy answer to your question is the way that I did it before Corona. So I have a face-to-face meeting with everybody. I would make them lunch and or dinner. Lucky them. Josh the chef. Yeah. <laughs> As you know, my Linda, I can cook. Yes, I do know. But when you break bread with somebody, that interview with me is the last interview. They've gone through capability. That's been sorted out. They've gone through two or three other interview processes with the team, and I'm the last kind of gatekeeper. We're relatively certain that you're the right person. But what I'm looking for is not capability. I'm looking for principles and values. And the best way to do that is to break bread with somebody in a relaxed, comfortable environment. How you take that to the next level is you play Monopoly. If you want to understand someone's values and principles, the best way to do it on the planet is Monopoly. And the reason why is you play a couple of hours of Monopoly with someone. What I'm looking for is not the things that you think I'm looking for. I'm looking for the tells, the things that you can't hide. A perfect example of this was a previous business with a project manager who was a phenomenal project manager, Michelle, and I was playing Monopoly with her, with Madeline, who was my COO at the time. We go through the rules at the start. In the rules of Monopoly, if you land on someone's property and you owe them rent and they don't ask you to pay rent, you don't have to. Now, what was really interesting is as we went through this, I'm not so much just in the first 20 minutes, but as you get through the game, there was this moment where Michelle landed on Madeline's property and instinctively, she just instinctively paid Madeline the rent without Madeline actually requesting it. For me, that's a big marker. It tells me someone who has an implicit value set of fairness, who really does believe in fairness and also a strong sense of their own personal integrity. Like what they see is fair. They're going to do what they see is fair, even though they could kind of trick it in a way that doesn't fit with their value set of integrity. Very big, strong marker. And very, very difficult to hide or pretend because you're looking for the little tells. You're looking for these little nuances that people don't notice. When you're looking for them, really strongly point to an individual's core values. And Monopoly, they all come out. You cannot hide. (laughs) I love that. So how long does the Monopoly game go for? A couple of hours. But it's a great opportunity (laughs) to get to know people. You know, you get to talk in a very casual environment. It's very disarming. It's just totally playful. And for me, I found it very, very effective in distinguishing people's values. Now, it takes time. But guess what hiring great people does? One of the things is that when you're a CEO of a startup, you're always busy and hiring people seems like something you can delegate. And when it comes to key staff, you can't. Love that. That's gold. Josh, there's so much more I'd want to ask you, but I want to be respectful of your time. (laughs) What's one thing you can share with other founders who are thinking about raising capital or who are embarking on the cap raising journey? It's really tough for the very first time. One of the things you've got to figure out is how do you actually get to investors? How do you get through that door? You have to solve that problem. There is no easy answer to that question. And the creativity that you have to come up with in order to solve that problem really is your test. Very first time it's your test. And the thing to understand is that along the way, it's heartbreaking. If your startup doesn't break your heart, you're not in it. You're just not in it. Startups are heartbreaking. Startups are the ultimate self-development course. They're the ultimate because if you want to understand what is in the way for you and your business, the answer is extremely simple but not easy. The answer is you walk into the bathroom and you look in the mirror and there's the answer. You are always in the way. It is never anybody else, ever. 100% of the time, it is you. You have to have the courage to confront that 
And when it comes to fundraising or even just other aspects of the business, but when it comes to fundraising, whether you succeed or not is down to who you are about it. And the thing that will have your fundraising be highly effective and successful will be you. And the thing that will have it not be is you. At a fundamental level, you've got to go to town on a whole range of things like your own fear and your own fear of embarrassment or shame or failure or ineptitude or not being good enough if somehow this doesn't work out. Investors are attack dogs. They can smell the fear. That kind of way of being will impact who you are in terms of the activity that you undertake, the whole way you view this. And that fear doesn't go away, but it's about being aware of it. It's about having the courage to address it when you see it. And that's called being human. And there's no perfection in that one. There's stumbling. It's about how best can you stumble. The idea that you're going to get through fundraising, being some sort of extraordinary athlete on a sprint is just not how it works. But fundamentally, what will determine it is who you be. And in order to distinguish that, you've got to go and look in the bathroom mirror. You've got to have the courage to really go to places where you may not have gone before. It does take something. And like I say, I I regard it as the ultimate self-development course. And that's kind of what I love about it. I've been doing this a long time and it doesn't get any easier. (laughs) Like the actions of it get easier, but it still takes you walking into the bathroom and looking in the mirror really does. In my view, it takes that almost every day. That's scary, but also very comforting to know. Josh, before we go, uh, we're going to do what I call the quick six. Okay. (laughs) I've remixed some of these from some of my favorite interviewers. What's your favorite work from home lunch or snack? It's actually a tuna salad with mayonnaise and then with like tomatoes and a green salad with like, literally, it's my favorite snacky kind of lunch. I love making it at home. Is that tinned tuna or fresh tuna? Yeah, tinned tuna in oil. Yes, has to be in oil. I'm definitely a tuna in oil rather than tuna in brine person. No, it's got it, yeah. It looks, it's my kind of five-minute go-to snack and it's healthy and delicious and, yeah, I love it. What's a great book that you've read recently? Extreme Ownership, really great. Phenomenal book on accountability and how you can bring in a culture of accountability into your business. And uh, written by two Navy SEALs. Really recommend it. A documentary or podcast that you've watched or listened to recently that you would recommend? I was watching something else, which is an age-old one, which is called Manufacturing Consent, which is by Noam Chomsky from the 80s, which uh, I was sitting down with my partner. I was explaining to her why I love this philosophy, which is around how the alignment of agendas between governments and corporations and the media basically manufactures consent. When you look at the naivety of that compared to what we see today, and that was the reason I was watching it. Like this is 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And when you look at what's happening with our media today coming out of platforms like Google and Facebook, this on steroids. So, yeah, I found that fascinating. What's the most useful good or service that you've bought in the last 12 months that costs $100 or less? It's my Jabra headphones, which I wear walking, which they they did cost me less than $100. What's on heavy rotation on your music playlist right now? Boris Brescia. I'm a bit of a techno nut. So he's a German techno DJ and he's definitely on high rotation, especially when I go walking in the morning. When you think of the word successful, Josh, who do you think of and why? When I think of the word success, I think of a quote that I once saw attributed to John Bon Jovi. And I never thought I would ever quote John Bon Jovi in life. (laughs) And I completely agree (laughs) with this perspective. And that is, he says, success is falling down nine times and getting up 10. As far as I can tell, that's all it is. 
I don't even know what success really actually is. And when you actually achieve an outcome that I'm intending to achieve, I go down to the pub, get drunk and think I'm terrific. And then I wake up the next day and life slaps me in the face and I'm back into reality. I'm not even sure what it is. Thank you, Bon Jovi. Shot to the heart. <laughs> I never thought I'd quote him. but <laughs> <laughs> Josh, this has been lots of fun. Good luck with Mintress. I'll be keeping a keen eye on it. Thank you so much for today. I'm very grateful for you. My absolute pleasure. And thanks so much. You've just listened to a really interesting lens on the processes and inner workings of startup culture. I enjoyed the humanity of the story. It's incredibly refreshing to get such personal insights. I'll be watching the journey of Mintrist with interest and we'll have Josh back on the show after he's completed his next funding rounds. Subscribe to the show so you don't miss out. You've been listening to The Raise, a show that takes you behind the scenes into founder stories about capital raising. This podcast is brought to you by Termsheet Guru, a product from the expert team at Metis Law. Create kick-ass capital raising term sheets with Termsheet Guru and learn how to negotiate term sheets with confidence. To find out more, head to the website termsheet.guru. That's T-E-R-M-S-H-E-E-T dot G-U-R-U. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Raise, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Mylin Dang, and we'll be back next episode with another deep dive into a founder's capital raising story. Mm-hmm.